Heavenly Father, that's a beautiful image and a thoroughly biblical one that you cover us. You cover and cleanse. You cover a cost. You cover shame and guilt by taking them out of the way, by replacing it with the righteousness of your son, Jesus. Thank you. There's nothing in the world around us in our own thoughts that make us want that grace or believe in it. We're wired sinfully to earn and achieve in our own strength. Help us have the humility to turn to grace instead. And as a man who loved you teaches us from a reflection he had of you, help us to learn today to love you more the way he did. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. It's a necessary flaw to my character and my temperament. I'm inclined to give advice and perspective unsolicited, even if it's about something I only recently learned myself. It's pretty amazing capacity. I can learn something the day before. Meet some stranger who brushes on the topic that I know about three pages worth, and my natural inclination is just to say, well, you know, I was reading, and here we go. My kids roll their eyes, and I feel pity for them when I notice over the stranger's shoulder that they've recognized that dad is at it again. And ever since I realized that, I've tried to be more aware of it, try to be self-aware and not give unsolicited advice, especially if it's honestly something I don't know much about, if anything. But because I'm now aware of this fault in myself, I kind of have a hobbyist interest in seeing it in others as well. I don't know if you've seen this. I've seen people who haven't been pregnant and never will be pregnant, including men, give encouragement and perspective to pregnant women. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Um, there's nothing worse than getting perspective, encouragement, much less coaching from someone who hasn't really been there, someone who doesn't get it. I've suffered it too. When I was in high school in Mexico, grinding my way through in subjects that I had no interest or talent for, like calculus and physics, and struggling, failing at times, my loving parents would say something like, it's okay, you're smart, you can do it. And I would think to myself, you never took calculus and physics, you don't know <laughs> how much trouble I'm actually in, and I'm, in this case, I'm not smart. People confuse it all the time. I'm not smart, I'm articulate, and there's a big difference. <laughs> I know some incredibly gifted, smart people who aren't articulate, and I also know some articulate idiots, so don't ever confuse <laughs> being articulate and being intelligent. So their comfort, their encouragement, as well-meaning as it was, and I appreciated it, but it wasn't much help because we both knew they really hadn't been there. When you read the Psalms, particularly any Psalm, but especially the Psalms of David on a personal level, you can be assured that the man who is teaching you and letting you hear his cry, his lament, his song of praise, whatever David is doing in relationship to God and in relationship to life, you can have the assurance that he has been there. He's been there, whatever it is. There's no trouble in the dimension of human experience likely that David did not no, on a personal level. 
As a young man, he faced the contempt and the rejection from his own family, from his older brothers, when they had this surprising and undeserved news that David was going to be the next king of Israel. When David the kid went to the battle that they were supposed to be in, facing Goliath, David was sent basically as an errand boy to take them some cheese sandwiches. One of his brothers called him wicked, said, you've just come to rubberneck the battle. Where are the sheep? Go home. When he went into the palace of King Saul, not yet to reign, but to comfort the king, David was a, an instance of music therapy in ancient Israel. He would play music to, the tormented, to soothe the tormented soul of King Saul. His boss, his king, whom he loved, tried to kill him while he played, tried to run him through with a spear. David had to run for his life. Later, knowing that David was to be the next king, Saul tried to take God's will into his own hands and pursued David across the deserts of Israel of the ancient world equivalent of his special forces, trying to kill him, a man who would do him no harm, who would actually defend the king's life with his own. Once he became king, things didn't change much. David faced, like any leader, constant criticism. And not the kind of criticism that shows up in an ugly poll, but the kind of criticism that leads to betrayal, to death. David was pursued both by enemies outside the kingdom and by enemies within the own kingdom. In fact, one of his own sons usurped the kingdom and made David again run for his life. So whatever your situation, whatever trouble you've brought into worship this morning, and I commend you every time the church gathers to follow Jesus' example and gathered with God's people, no matter how heavy-hearted you are, if you're especially heavy-hearted and it's especially hard to come, that's when you most need to. You need to hear from the Lord, and together we, the church, or the assembly, we're the collected people of God to hear from Him and to go out into our lives to serve Him as His body. So whatever you've brought in to worship with you, you can understand just from one person to another, David gets it. And that's probably no more evident, evident, no place better than Psalm 23, beloved Psalm 23. Would you look with me in your Bibles, please, there, right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 23. David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Many have committed this psalm to memory. Many of us have read it or recited it in times of trouble. Even people who are not familiar with the Bible likely know the first line, and it's massively important. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. 
And regardless of what Bible translation you brought in, the word Lord is probably in capitals. Yes? Now, in internet speak, that means somebody shouting at you, right? Somebody texts you with all caps, you go, oh boy, they're mad. That's not what the translators intended. This is a very old convention of translating the Hebrew Bible. Here's what it means. Where they have placed the word, the word LORD in all caps, that's a quiet reference not to the generic term for God, but to the Lord's own personal name. Because God is not a force. He has a name, in fact, He has many, by which He has chosen to make Himself known to people. And this particular name, if you were to read it in the Hebrew Bible, it would sound something like Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd, was the name that God gave Moses when a frightened Moses, also in the desert, asked God, hearing his mission that he didn't want, that he was to return to Egypt to bring the people of Israel out because their suffering was over. God was going to fulfill his promise to them and bring them out. Moses said, well, just buying time, trying to make excuses, who do I tell them sent me? And the answer he got was, tell them I am that I am. That's kind of cryptic. What's it mean? When God expresses his name, Yahweh, which is based on this phrase, I am, he's telling you something fundamental and very, very different from you. He is telling you that unlike you, he's eternal. He has simply always existed. He just is. He's uncreated and He is unchanging. He simply is the God who is, and because He is the God who is, He is also the God who is there. The first line of the Bible tells you that much. Without explanation or defense, Genesis 1 verse 1, maybe you know it says, in the beginning, what? God created. There was a God who was always there, and at a point of time of His own choosing, the God who is always existent created So I don't understand that. Well, frankly, I don't either because I'm mortal. I can't conceive of eternality. But everyone who grapples with the universe, who thinks a little bit beyond themselves and begins to think about the reality of the world around us, ends up believing in something like eternal matter. In other words, that the stuff, the energy, the particles, whatever it is that you call, scientists speak about the singularity, that at a certain point in time there was just energy or particles that led to everything else. Where did they come from? We don't know. They were just there and they started doing all these things. So everyone ultimately is a person of faith and you believe simply that matter or energy was there or that God was there. And the revelation of the Bible proven, especially in the person, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is that there is an eternal God who just is And David says, that eternal God, he is my shepherd. In other words, I'm not in some kind of impersonal relationship with a force in the universe. My God has a name and and has a will and has emotions and plans, and I know him, and what's better, he knows me. Because he's personal, he's reached out to me, and David, thinking of his first job as a shepherd boy, says the eternal God whose name can be known, the God who can be known, he is my shepherd. He has taken charge of me. He has promised to take care of me. 
and everything else in the psalm is an expression of David reflecting back on his shepherding days, telling you what sort of God he is in relationship with and what this God will do for him. Look at it again in your Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. And because, David says, I'm part of his flock, because he's taken charge of me, because it's personal to him, that's why I know him, because he is a person who has reached out to me, taken me for his own, Here's my bottom line confidence. The Lord is my shepherd, and because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And there's a lot of the translators left it in that old English verb, I think, on purpose to make you think about what David means. He certainly means that God is going to provide for him. But he can't mean that life is always going to be good and easy for him. I already told you, David has known every kind of suffering and trouble a man can. He's known deep poverty. He's literally run for his life. He's run with the clothes on his back as the entirety of his provision. How then can God say that, can David say that he will not want? Well, there's two levels, I think. God, my shepherd, will ultimately take care of me, and with him and his provision, I am going to learn to be content. I have come to a point in my circumstances that because I have the Lord, I'm provided for and I'm content. And then he goes into all these images, which a a modern-day shepherd who shepherded in very similar conditions to the ancient world wrote a wonderful book about that really helped me. His name is Philip Keller. He unpacks some of David's images. Let's look at them. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You see, sheep are not particularly intelligent animals. Anyone ever been on a a round a flock of sheep? They're cute, to a point. They're a lot cuter on the Christmas card. They're a lot cuter in Hallmark than they are in the field. They're big and fluffy and also smelly. They're not particularly intelligent animals. They're certainly not athletic. And their greatest daily need is sustenance. They need green pastures, and they are unintelligent creatures of habit left to their own. If they're placed on good land, left to their own, they will soon devour it. They will eat it down to the root and leave a rocky wasteland, and being a creature of habit with no particular initiative of their own, they will starve there if the shepherd does not take them to land that he knows or has provided for them. It's the same with water. He leads me beside still waters. Sheep are undiscerning creatures. If they can't have enough from the dew of the morning, they'll drink any stagnant water they can find. There they will get parasites, which will soon make their life miserable, if not kill them. It's the shepherd's responsibility to know in any arid conditions where the green pastures and the still waters are. He can take them to quiet waters rather than white water where they could easily stumble in and quickly drown under the weight of their own wool. He will know where the wells are in the desert to take them to quiet places where they can lay down and rest. David says, he restores my soul. And that's so poetic that he spe- and the translation speaks of the soul that it I think helps us miss what David likely had in mind as he reflected on his shepherding days. You see, sheep haven't changed. In all these years, they have the same troubles. They're not athletic. They grow heavy with wool, 
and they're easily tipped over. There's a word for it in English. Shepherds in the English language still speak of their sheep being cast or their sheep being cast down. Here's how it happens. The little sheep will lie down wherever it pleases, and if it lies down in a little indentation, if there's a little slant in the land, it's very easily with the little strength and athleticism it has to very slightly tip over. And with its short little legs and all of that weight, it will be unable to right itself. Keller says it might bleat for a little while and protest and ask for some help, but the other sheep can't help it. They're interested in their own little blades of grass. They might gather around it, look at it, and think to themselves in their own sheep thoughts, well, bummer. (laughs) Better you than me. And it looks kind of silly, but it's actually quite dangerous. Because, especially in the hot months, when a sheep is tipped over like that, the powerful digestion occurring within it will begin slowly to kill it. And in a hot day, it can die in a matter of a few hours. What David is saying is, when I'm cast down, you restore me. You put me back on my feet. There's a happy coincidence in the English language. In another psalm, David will ask himself, why are you cast down, my soul? In other words, sometimes life will knock you down in such a way that you don't feel the strength to get up. You have good news. If you have the Lord, the eternal God, as your shepherd, He is the one who will come to you and patiently put you right side up. In a good flock, the shepherd knows where the sheep are likely to be cast down, and he knows which of the sheep are likely to tip over every day. And if he cares for them, If he cares for the flock, he will patiently go to them once and again, and he will never, like someone else might, tire of you and say, you again? When are you going to learn? Haven't we been over this? Tire of picking you back up, of restoring your life, your soul. Your heavenly Father will not tire of you. He will never tell you, that's the good news of the gospel, your heavenly Father will never tell you as a human father or mother might, you know what, I'm tired of this. Have you ever said this to your kids? Kids, have you ever heard this? You figure it out. At no point in the history of the universe will the eternal loving God say to those he has brought into his family, you figure it out. The point of his love and his character and his sacrifice is that he knows the truth and he is willing to bring it to you again and again and again so that you will take deep drinks from him, as the prophets say, the fountain of living water. So that you will feed and be sustained by God. So that when life knocks you over or your own foolishness leaves you helpless, you have a God who will restore your soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And on the surface, that just simply means that God, knowing this life through this evil world, will always lead you in the right way, in the moral way, in the true, genuine righteous way, and that's true, but there's a sheep picture there as well. Because sheep are unintelligent creatures of habit left to their own, they will wear a little path wherever it pleases them, and they will never leave it, even when they eat it clean and they're literally starving for their lack of initiative to leave the path and go on to where the pasture is. And isn't that modern-day America? 
You see, every person in this room, beginning with the guy who's talking to you, left to ourselves, run to something besides God to find comfort and sustenance. That's the nature of sin. It invites you to trust something or someone besides the God who made you for your ultimate satisfaction. And you will stay on that well-worn path and it won't give you any satisfaction. You can feel your soul shriveling and it won't make any difference. You will continue doing the same things over and over again thinking that that worn-out path will somehow change and begin to sustain you and it won't. Those of you in our church, and there are many of you who were addicted and are now walking in sobriety, that makes perfect sense to you, but I would offer to you whether you are officially, formally wearing the label addict, every human soul craves something besides God, and the temptation is to always run to something or someone else rather than to Him. The smartphones in our pockets have made it all too easy. There is a world beyond us at our fingertips all the time where people can find comfort in a game, in reading the news, in keeping up with friends, in stalking people that you really, really like or you really, really hate. And you find enjoyment, you find a respite in that. In all of these things, God, the lover of your soul, the keeper of your soul, He wants not only to restore it and to put you on the right path, He wants to lead you through it. Verse 4 leads us to a second benefit. What the Lord has told us so far is that He is our provision. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I can count, first of all, on His provision. And not only that, verse 4 tells me I can count on His protection. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is a different perspective. There's biblical wisdom that flies in the face of our culture. You see, in in 21st century America, what we have dedicated ourselves to is the absence of danger. We've worked hard to provide a world and an environment that is safe. And if you look at the data, especially if you look back going 50 years, we've largely succeeded. The world itself is dangerous, but if you're fortunate enough to live in the United States, and particularly if you live along the Orange Coast in Southern California, you live in one of the safest places that human history has ever devised. Most of the things that we really fear are wildly unlikely in a statistical way, and yet we're ridden with anxiety. We've created a culture that is uniquely safe in human history, not without danger, but so much more improved even from my own childhood. And when I think back about the fact that when I was a kid, they threw me in the back of a pickup and I would stand up in the back of the pickup and lean on the cab and urge the driver who was just a few years older than me to drive faster and kind of brace for the bump. I mean, it's a wonder any of us made it. My dad's idea of a road trip was throwing a mattress in the back of a panel van with a box of comic books and games, and here I go. Who knows what could have happened? Like a little rag doll bouncing back there sometimes where the road was bad in Mexico. 
We're much safer than we've ever been, but we're ridden with anxiety. Anybody who works with people will tell you depression, anxiety, intrusive thoughts, they're at an all-time high. And the reason is we've put the emphasis in the wrong place. What David is telling you is his confidence does not come from the absence of danger. His comfort comes not from the absence of danger or enemies. His comfort comes from the presence of the Lord. And that's what makes all the difference. I will fear no evil. What's he say? For you are with me. Not that there is not evil out there. I'm I am not fearing evil, not because it doesn't exist, not because there isn't risk. I am fearing no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And here David refers to two key instruments in a shepherd's hand, a rod and a staff. What's the difference? Well, the rod is a weapon. The rod is what the shepherd is always going to carry to draw from his belt or his bag and quickly fight off predators and quickly fight off thieves. The staff is different. If you've ever seen a kid in a Christmas play and they made him a shepherd, maybe you saw one of these. This is the long stick with the hook on the end. What's the point of the hook? It's not artistic. Again, sheep with their poor vision, their unintelligent brains, and their lack of athleticism can get so focused on blades of grass that they can follow the grass right over to the edge of the cliff and fall off. What's the staff for? To reach out and quickly hook the sheep and sometimes painfully yank it back onto the path and yank it to safety. David says, these instruments in your hands deployed against people who would do me harm and used on me to keep me safe, they comfort me, you protect me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Here David has changed the image. Sheep don't need tables. David is reflecting on another way that he has experienced God. Now, God is not only his shepherd, God is a host that invites him into his own home and spreads before him a banquet. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. In the ancient world, anointing a guest with oil would have been seen as a kindness and an act of respect. It would have signaled honor. David says, you welcome me not only to give me the bare necessities of life, you spread a table so full of me and treat me so well that my cup is overflowing. In other words, I have more than enough. And David says, you do all of this in the presence of what now? It's quite a picture. David says, you haven't destroyed all of my enemies. They're still in my life. What God pleases to do often with us is not take us out of the world or get rid of all the enemies around us. You may be thinking that for God to be faithful, He has to blow up all the people you don't like. And some of you, frankly, if I may be more personal and direct, are making yourself miserable by stalking them on social media, hoping that they will be miserable so that you can be happy. And all they're showing you is the highlight reel, and they appear to be very happy while you know yourself to be somewhat miserable, and your life's just getting worse and worse and worse. You don't need God to 
destroy other people for you to flourish. In fact, the reason He's extending them life and grace if they don't know Him is precisely because what God wants most is for them to be reconciled first to Him and later to you. And you don't need their life to be miserable for your life to be joyful and contented. How do I know this? Because David says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What God delights to do is to bless his people in the very presence of people who wish them harm. That's how he, if you will, shows off as a shepherd. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David said the shepherd ultimately is going to take the flock home. And David makes it personal now. He's no longer using the sheep imagery. He's using the imagery of family where the Lord, the one who is there, the one who has chosen to tell David his name, to bring him into personal relationship with, is actually saying to David, David, I'm going to make sure that goodness and mercy chase you, follow after you wherever you go. I'm going to keep you on the path if you'll listen to me. I'm going to make sure that my blessings follow you and your ultimate destination in spite of death, in spite of the shadows of death and all the things that we fear that we're trying to get rid of, let me tell you, I've learned much more about God and from God in the valley than I have from the mountaintop. Because the shepherd knows that sometimes good pastures have to be sought at the other end of valleys. Don't resist the valley, trust the shepherd, because he has promised to go with you and give you his presence so that he can enjoy you and you can enjoy him forever so that you can enjoy Him, the eternal God, for all of eternity. And Christian, in closing, may I remind you that you have a greater perspective and a greater assurance than David ever did? Because you live a thousand years later. You live after David, rather, is writing a thousand years before Jesus was born. You live 3,000 years after David's time. It has been some 2,000 years from David's point of view since Jesus came. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you what Jesus said. When he was on earth, he took these same scriptures and explained how good God the Father was and how good he was. Look, John 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See the connection? Israel had grown up singing and reciting and memorizing and taking comfort. This is what is true of us. We have Yahweh as our shepherd. The God of the universe cares for us, looks out for us, and Jesus comes on earth a thousand years after David and says, I am that good shepherd. The God that David could not see has come, and he's a better shepherd than anyone could ask for, imagine, or expect. He is the good shepherd who actually lays down his life for the sheep. See, in actual practice, a good shepherd will go to meet the danger, but when he's outnumbered, he'll retreat. He won't die for the flock. After all, the flock is his living. It's his livelihood. They're not worth dying for. The point of the flock's life is to sustain his own. Jesus is such a good shepherd that he is actually going to face the greatest enemy. 
He's going to face sin and death, and he is going to deliberately lay his life down. This same chapter, Jesus is speaking and explaining, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down. Can you guess what he said next? I have authority to lay it down and also authority to take it up again. Jesus is saying, I'm on my way to the cross to die for you, but I won't stay dead. I will take my life back and give you the eternal life that I am. Here's how he explained it in John 10, 28. Read it with me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus said them, referring to all that he would save, if you know Jesus or if you will trust him this morning, you can put your name there. I can say that Jesus said of me, I will give Bruce eternal life and he will never perish and no one will ever snatch Bruce out of my hand. You'll say, well, isn't that a little self-involved? Aren't you a little proud of yourself? Not at all. And I'll show you why. It's in a single line that as I work through that psalm line by line, you may have noticed I missed. Go back with me to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Here's the line I skipped. I didn't explain He leads me in paths of righteousness. What's it say? For His name's sake. Now, what difference does that make? It makes all the difference in the world. You see, if God loved you for your own sake, you may someday disappoint Him enough where He says, you've cost me too much. The return on investment in my relationship with you not good enough. You often tell yourself in guilt and shame that you're not worth it. God in His grace says that you are, not because of you, but because of Him. God provides all these blessings. God provides, God protects, God goes with His flock, calling back to them so they can hear His voice. And as Jesus said, His sheep hear His voice and follow Him. He does all of that and goes and meets their enemies, including the enemy of death, so that they can have eternal life with Him forever. They do this not for the sheep's sake, but for His own name's sake. You see, the shepherd Keller says, you can tell the character of a man by the condition of his flock. You can look at a starving flock and say there's a cruel man, there's a lazy man in charge of those sheep. Your heavenly father is neither lazy nor cruel nor indifferent. He is loving and faithful and good and self-sacrificial to the point of giving his own son, Jesus, so that you could trade your sins for the righteousness of Christ and you could have this assurance from Jesus that you have eternal life and they will never perish because he has chosen to take charge of your life, place you in his nail-scarred hand where you are safe, not because you're worth it, but because he is, because, not because you're good, but because God is. That's the teaching of Psalm 23 that we have this amazing blessing from God so that we can say that the Lord is with me and the Lord is for me for His own sake. So what matters is for you to have the certainty of this relationship. See, let me be really, really practical. 
There are people who come to church, this church and many others all over the world. They hear the message, they hear of Christ, and they never take the humble step of trusting Jesus with their sin and Jesus with their obedience and become part of His flock, become His disciples, if you want a different word picture. They take it as encouragement. They think it's some sort of Tony Robbins experience with some Bible verses thrown in. They go out and they say, okay, God loves me, I'll try, I'll do better, I'll, get, I'll figure it out. No, 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 no. The good news is that you're lost, that you can't save yourself, that you're like a helpless sheep crying out for help and no strength and no knowledge of your own will ever restore your soul. That's why Jesus came. So if you've been coming here for 20 years or for two or three weeks, it makes no difference. The, what matters is having the assurance of having turned to Jesus as your good shepherd and saying to Him, not to me, not to religion. Religion just invites you to try harder and get better. Jesus assures you that He's better. He's better than anything and everyone, and He has done it all for you. To turn to Him and say, I can't save myself. I'm sorry for the way I've ignored you. I'm sorry for the way I've sinned. Please save me. And He'll take charge of you. He's taken charge of me. He's taken charge of untold millions all around the world ever since He came to die for our sins. If you will turn to Him in genuine, humble repentance, in other words, if you'll give up on you and start trusting Him, He'll save you. He promised to. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. I had the pleasure of praying with a man this week who did just that in the shadow continually of the good news, never trusting the person who died to give it to you, never trusting Jesus. If this is your condition, as we close our service, call out to Him and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I know I'm a sinner and I know you can save me. I trust you. I believe you for salvation. And if you're already in His flock, May I invite you to do the hard work with me to taking your eyes off your circumstances, your eyes off others, the eyes of the conditions around you, and putting your eyes on the good shepherd who will lead you safely wherever he knows it's good for you to go. Let's pray. I speak first and most urgently to those of you who may not have Christ. You've been trying to figure it out. You're interested. Some of this makes sense to you, but you don't have the assurance of your sins, of the salvation from your sins. My simple invitation to you is not to change religions. That would be pointless. That's just trading one man-made system, one, man, one man's path for another. I'm inviting you to believe the good news, to identify yourself as a needy person in need of salvation, in need of forgiveness, and turning to Jesus and telling Him personally, I believe you can do that for me. I'm turning to you, confessing myself a sinner, and confessing you a Savior, and asking you to save me. If you do that, you don't owe us an explanation. I would just ask that you take the card in the bulletin and let us know that you've prayed along those lines. It won't make it official. It won't make anything different. It's just one person telling another that they've trusted Christ, and our role as a church would be to come beside you. Celebrate that, first of all, and then help you walk after Jesus with the rest of us. 
So maybe you've come to a point in your life and today is your day and God is graciously reaching out to you and you won't refuse Him and you'll say, Jesus, please forgive me. My conscience speaks against me. I know I've done wrong. I know I've sinned. I know I've failed you and others. I'm not trying to save myself. I'm asking you humbly to save me from myself and save me from my sins. And he will. He's already promised if you will come to him humbly and sincerely, he will never turn you away. And Christian, there's so many of you in trouble. Every week I hear the troubles of others and I think on my own. We have a good shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord who dies and lives again to give us eternal life. He's your good shepherd. So whatever troubles you came in with, give those to him again. Promise that you'll listen for his voice and whether it makes sense to you or not, that you'll follow what he's told you to do. And you'll trust him to take you onto good pasture, good water, and ultimately into his house to live forever. Lord Jesus, I, I pray for those who this morning may be turning to you for salvation. Even as I pray aloud, may they do real business with you and turn themselves over to you. Invite you to take charge of them, to be Savior and boss. I pray also that they would let us know, Lord, so that we can celebrate with them and grow up with them. And for the many disciples, the many people in your flock already, Help us to keep our eyes on you and follow after you as we hear your voice. May this offering and this worship be a simple, tangible expression, whether people give here or online or however they choose to honor you with their giving. May it be a beautiful expression of how much we trust you with material things. In Jesus' name, amen.